I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. You're with us normally at Grace Covenant, or uh, we uh, work our way through letters or uh, books of the Bible, uh, but during this time of year, during Advent and at a couple of other times, we uh, kind of take a, a break from that and we turn our attention elsewhere. During this Advent season, we turn our attention to different themes that are related to uh, the birth, the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And for this holiday season, we are looking at this very familiar passage, this uh, uh, familiar uh, account of the birth of our Lord Jesus, uh, and looking in particular at the, the gifts in a series that I've titled, Wise Men Still Give Good Gifts. This morning, we look again to this text, Matthew 2, verses 10 and 11. And pray that the Lord would speak to us. Hear the word of our God. When the Magi saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. The word of our God. Let's pray. Father, as we come this day, we come with both thanksgiving and, I hope, with expectancy. For this word reminds us of how you have fulfilled your promises in the past, and encourages us to hope in your promise that is still to be fulfilled. And I pray that as we gather this morning, we are a people who have been blessed to have heard of Jesus, to know what he has done, and to trust in him with our whole lives and for our eternity. And I pray that as we consider what it means to be those who belong to him, we during this holiday season would also be desiring to give ourselves to him. And so, Lord, we pray that you would be at work showing us how, reminding us why, and renewing us in the union that we already have because of your grace through faith in him who has come to dwell among us. Bless us, Lord. We may be a blessing to those around us, and an honor to you. We pray in his incomparable name, Christ Jesus. Amen. Some time ago I was reading a syndicated newspaper columnist who was kind of lamenting and expressing her frustrations in the difficulties she had in buying Christmas gifts for the men in her lives, her husband and her father. And she said, with men, it's either a feast or famine. They either want something that is so cheap, like socks, or so expensive, like a new boat or a convertible. (laughs) And she said, look at Sports Illustrated. All you can pick out are convertibles and Rolex watches or smoking patches and batteries. I mean, it's just the feast or the famine. And so she talked with another man, another woman, who was a friend of hers who shared the same frustration and shared the difficulty she was having in finding a a gift for her husband. And the other woman said that 
she understood completely because she wouldn't dare buy a gift for her fly fisherman husband because she knew whatever she got, it would inevitably be the wrong fly or the wrong thing. So the two of them went to a third friend who happened to be a marketing expert who understood their, frustrating, their frustrations. And this third woman gave them the advice of her years of experience in marketing. And she said that here's the things that you need to get men. Scuba diving lessons, three Stooges movies, or anything with moving parts, and you're good. These are the gifts that the marketing experts said that men will accept. Now, the reality is, I guess it is difficult sometimes to get the right gift for some men, and, and yet, as difficult as it may be, it somehow gets done. But the question before us during this Advent season, this, this holiday season, is not just what can we get for men in our lives, whether it's husbands or fathers or, or, or sons or, or friends, uh, but what is it that we can get and we can give to the, the Son of Man? What is it that it kind of gift is appropriate to give to Jesus Christ, whose birth that we are celebrating anyway? Now, one of the things that we will see and hopefully will come to mind as we go through these few weeks is that unlike buying gifts for other men, we don't need to pull our hair out in frustration, but we can turn to God's Word in inspiration or for inspiration. And what we have seen last week, and we will see again uh, today and, and next week, is that God's Word doesn't leave us wondering. But we see in the passage that we've read gifts that were already purchased and given to our Lord Jesus Christ uh, not long after his own actual birth. Uh, maybe not within a matter of days, but uh, within uh, months uh, of, of his uh, having been born. But we see three gifts that these wise men, these magi brought and presented that were received and recorded so that we may know. Three gifts that are, are all a reflection of the three offices which this young baby uh, would come to exercise during his life. There was gold for a mighty king. There is incense or, or frankincense for a ministering priest. And there is myrrh for a martyred prophet-to-be. Now, myrrh is an interesting subject, uh, an interesting substance. And here's, uh, as uh, I, I, I took this definition from the, the Bible dictionary. Myrrh grows on a bush-like tree common in the Middle East, from which a rosin is extracted. The extracted rosin is then crushed or ground up, and when it is crushed and ground up, it emits a fragrance that, like frankincense, is a, a popular perfume. In fact, the crushed scent of, of myrrh is continued to be used, and it is in the essential oils that many of you use, or as I rather snarkily refer to them at our house as the miracle oils, because I'm told there's an oil for everything. But the aroma is something that was very pleasant, and because the aroma was pleasant, it was used as a perfume, and it was used particularly as a, as a perfume um, when in, after death. There's three times in the Gospels where myrrh is mentioned. 
obviously this passage here in Matthew 2 where the Magi bring it as a, as a gift for Jesus. The next time that it is mentioned is in Mark 15. It's given to Jesus on the cross as a painkiller because apparently myrrh, and when it's consumed, has that capacity, that, that quality that uh, dulls, uh, the, dulls the pain. And then we see it again in John 19 when Joseph of Arimathea uh, and Nicodemus came to prepare Jesus' body for burial. But note that the other two times that myrrh is even mentioned in the Gospels, it is associated with crushing and death. And I would suggest to you appropriate even now for the passage before us, the third time that it's used, because it is looking ahead. It's given to the one who would be crushed for our iniquities, who would die in our place. But whenever we see myrrh, we should be thinking death. And whenever we see myrrh uh, in connection with Jesus Christ, and every time we see it in the Gospels, it is connected with Jesus in some way. It should remind us that Jesus came to die. That was the purpose in his coming and assuming our nature in the first place. And the scripture tells us uh, that Jesus predicted this and, and told us this. He predicted his own death uh, at least three times in, in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which tend to share uh, very similar qualities. Uh, John also uh, speaks of Jesus sharing and, and prophesying about his own death uh, much more cryptically in, in most circumstances. And John is, uh, is, is a different kind of literature, more thematic than, uh, than pure history. Uh, but Jesus uh, spoke uh, three different times, and we see it uh, recorded in all of the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, first was after he fed the multitudes uh, of the people, and, and here's how Mark records that. Uh, Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and that after three days he would rise again. And Jesus, we're told, was so clear about this teaching. It wasn't anything cryptic whatsoever. Peter got the message, got the message so clearly, he confronts Jesus and says, no way, not on my watch. This is not going to happen. Forbid it, Lord, that you should be put to death by these religious zealots. To which Jesus responds, seeming rather harsh, get behind me, Satan. Now, we suspect it's probably because it's a, it, it, it's a reference or, or as a reminder to Jesus of the temptations he had in the wilderness. When Satan came to him in his, uh, in his physical weakness, having not eaten, not having anything to drink, out in the wilderness, and promised him the kingdom if he would just bow down before God, uh, before, before Satan, and then he would have everything that he came for except without the cross. Jesus rejected Satan at that point, and he says to Peter, get behind me, because the idea of Jesus becoming the king and reigning and even being our example of how it is to live apart from dying on the cross would be to forfeit, forfeit the purpose for which he has come. And so Jesus was very clear in his teaching that his purpose for coming was to die. He picked it up again uh, not long thereafter as they were passing through Galilee during their ministry there. And Mark again, and Mark 9, records this. He said, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, but after three days he will rise. And then the third time that the Synoptic Gospels are very clear that Jesus talks about this was on the road to Jerusalem for that final Passover. 
Mark records it this way. They were on their way up to Jerusalem, Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while uh, those who followed were afraid. Again, Jesus took the twelve aside and he told them what was going to happen to him. We're going to go up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. But three days later, he will rise. Again, as John, rather cryptically, but one of the most vivid uh, examples of Jesus teaching his disciples, he says this, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I, I received from my Father. So he's focused forward to the point of his death during his whole ministry. I think perhaps the most clear expression of this comes when Jesus, towards the uh, end of his ministry, before his crucifixion, declares this as Matthew records, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, some may think I went overboard because most of you here probably recognize, well, of course Jesus came and Jesus died. And, but what I'm saying is this, is that Jesus didn't just come and didn't just die. Jesus came to die. That statement that he makes in Matthew, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. He came to give his life as a ransom. This was the purpose for which Jesus has come. It's not an incidental, it's not a highlight, it is the very purpose, the very mission. The reason Satan was trying to subvert that in the early days when he was tempted in the early part of his ministry, because Satan would be willing to do anything except for Jesus go to the cross. Because if Jesus doesn't go to the cross, no matter how perfectly he lives his life, no matter how exemplary his life is to us, it is ultimately of no avail. Because you and I, no matter how diligent we might be to try to follow the pattern of his life and the, the, the details of his teaching, we still have this problem. We are left in our sin, and therefore we are destined for destruction, God's wrath, alienation, and hell. Apart from the death of Jesus Christ, we have no real hope. The best we have is peaceful lives here, but then eternity apart from God and as enemies of God. And the reason I emphasize that is because within our culture, once again, we see emerging by many, many churches and many people who are well-intended without ever denying the reality of the cross and the resurrection. At least they diminish it by putting it over as a side thing, focusing the attention, saying the primary thing of Christianity is what Jesus said and then how he lived his life. And as important as those things are, Jesus' own testimony tells us quite the difference. He came to die. He was born to die. His perfect life was necessary so that he would be the perfect sacrifice, that he could be the substitute dying in our place, satisfying the fullness and the holiness of God so they didn't have to pay for his own sin, but in his perfection, in his death, he was able to pay for our sin. And I, I, this is a point of passion because as more and more people get that, and perhaps rightly so because there are many Christians who have their doctrine right and their lives are dead. People begin appealing to live our lives more like Christ and yet diminishing the whole purpose for which he has come. And there is no hope. And Christmas is just a party, but symbolizing nothing if we disconnect it from his death. Christmas 
should always lead us to think of Easter. For that is the real purpose for which Christ has come. Now you might be thinking, well, that explains then how myrrh relates to Jesus. He came to die. Myrrh is associated with death. He, he was crushed for our iniquities, and myrrh is crushed. And then in the crushing, there is the, the sweet aroma. And certainly, myrrh is a, a substance that is reflective of Jesus Christ. But I thought the whole point here was, what are we giving to Jesus? I mean, that sounds more like, well, what do we get from Jesus because of his death? And and really, that is uh, that is the promise of all of these passages. And it's important to recognize we can never outgive God. And yet, because of God's grace, of giving us not only the gift of Jesus and, and fellowship with him and fellowship in him and salvation in him, we're left with the question, how do we respond? And how do we say thank you to our God? How do we, what do we give to our God? And I would suggest to you the gift of myrrh is not only... God's gift to us, reflecting Christ. But giving the gift of myrrh is appropriate to give to God. The question is, how do we do that? We give the gift of myrrh to Jesus when we die to ourselves using the language that the Scripture often uses. We give the gift of myrrh by dying to ourselves and living our lives for him. When we recognize that our primary purpose and our greatest joy is living not for ourselves, but for God's glory. Listen to what Jesus says, because this is the way that God has designed it to be. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever does not uh, bear his own cross and come after me uh, cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. See, the whole essence of being a Christian, of being a follower of Jesus Christ, is not getting our doctrine straight. I can now answer that question, why did Jesus come? He, he died, he died for my sins, I believe, and I trust in that. Those are essential questions to answer. Uh, but with that, to follow, be a follower of Jesus, according to Jesus himself, means to take up our cross, the instrument of death as it's represented in Scripture. Meaning that when we take that up, we die to living for ourselves and for our own vain ambitions, and we choose, therefore, to follow him and to live in such a way that we honor and we glorify him. But the thing is, is the scripture tells us that when we do that, when we die to ourselves, we actually find the joy of life. We actually find the purpose that we, we have, in, 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 that God has designed for us in this life. And so we need to be very clear is that the call to follow Jesus, the call to be a disciple, the essence of being a Christian is dying to self and living to the glory of God. The question is, though, how do we do this? And I think the scriptures tell us a couple of different ways. There's, there's multiple ways but, uh, that we do it in day-to-day in, uh, -day lives. But, uh, but essentially, we, we find two. In, in Philippians 2, we read these words as the Apostle Paul was, uh, was explaining what it means to die to self. He gives this practical instruction. Do nothing from selfish ambition or, or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. In other words, every one of us has desires. Every one of us has passions. Every one of us has interests. There's things that we want to do. 
And those things themselves are not wrong, and they are not ungodly. But we need to recognize that sometimes our interests are just for our interests. There are things that would bring us pleasure. There are things that would bring us joy. And sometimes those things that would bring us joy might step all over the people who are around us. And we need to be aware of that. This passage is not against having ambition in any way, shape, or form. It's about checking our ambition and seeing what is the ultimate result of following our ambitions and pursuing our ambitions. Is it merely something that is good for me? Or is it something that is going to honor God and somehow bring a blessing to the people who are around me? And what Jesus is saying and what Paul is saying here as uh, from what he has learned through the life and the teachings of Jesus Christ is that we don't do anything out of selfish ambition, just that which is going to benefit ourselves. But we consider what it is that we want to do and consider the implications for the people who are around us. And then ultimately, what does God get out of it? Will God be honored? Will God be glorified? Will people recognize the grace and the, and the holiness of God because of the way that we live our lives in pursuit of our ambition? I would suggest that there is a way to do almost everything we desire to do and to do it for the glory of God. But there's also a way just to do it where we, you know, we don't mind if God gets some credit, but it's really not our focus. But what this is calling us to do is to just examine what our ambition is and then consider other people and consider God and not only consider ourselves in the things that we do and the things that we pursue. Paul also wrote to the Colossians, and so we see that this is a, an issue that is not just uh, an incident, but uh, people everywhere are in need of understanding. And in Colossians 3, he, he writes the, this, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Uh, in, God. in other words, his status, the, the nature. We, when we come to faith, we die to ourselves, and now we are hidden in Christ, all of us, and we are united with Christ in, in, in God. That's, that's the essence of of what it is to be a Christian. And so practically speaking, Paul goes on, so put to death, therefore, that which is earthly in, your, uh, in you, sexual immorality, impurity, inappropriate passions, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And so it's not just a matter of our ambition, but it's the, the, the emotions that we have, the things that we, we desire, uh, the passions and the affections that we have. We need to be aware of them and recognize that every one of them that we have is a gift that has been given of God, but there is either appropriate expressions or there's inappropriate expressions of those things. And we don't live for the sake of those passions, but we live to the glory of God. And because we are not animals that live by mere instinct, that we can intentionally now cultivate a life that has lived out and channeling those passions in a proper way, and then saying, no, I will not pursue those passions in a way that is contrary to the way that God has called us to live. I will not live out those passions in a way that will use or hurt other people. I will use those passions to give thanks to God because he has wired me in this way, and I will express them and exercise them only in those areas where God has said, this is what they are for. And so whether it's our ambition or our desires to die to self is not to say we therefore do nothing that we would enjoy, we would have nothing. There's a misnomer uh, in, in some expressions of Christianity that the essence of being denying ourselves is to, if, you, if it would bring you any happiness, don't do it. The scriptures tell us over and over that the Lord brings us joy. Jesus came to bring us life and life abundantly. 
But we find that life and life abundantly when we see our lives in Christ as part of a bigger part, a part a bigger, a bigger picture. And not just as if we are however many billion individuals that are ro- rolling around this earth in the survival of the fittest. We find joy in being part. We find joy in living our lives the way that God has designed them. And he has designed them to live within particular expressions. And anything outside of that, it's an invitation. It's a command to say no to. And it sounds so hard. And functionally speaking, it may be. And we are works in process. God has given us his Holy Spirit to work in us that we might die more and more to sin and to live to his righteousness. As we engage in that process, saying no here, saying yes here, saying no to what is uh, unrighteous, saying yes to righteousness, we are giving a gift of myrrh to our Lord. But the amazing thing is, is because we can never outgive God, we can never outgrace Him. He tells us that it's in dying that we live. Jesus said this, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Another time he says this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, which is the invitation to die to self. But immediately after he uh, gave that uh, instruction, he says this, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his own soul? In other words, you may be better than most people and you may be able to exercise your ambition and achieve everything that you want. And, you know, you step on some people along the way. Maybe you don't like to, but, you know, that's the consequence of living that way. And you may come out winning. But the question that Jesus poses for us is, is, and then ultimately, what good is it? The old saying is, you know, the one who dies with the most toys wins. But as a more godly statement is, the one who dies with the most toys is still dead. But the one who recognizes the one who dies with the most toys is still dead and says, you know what, there's got to be more than that. And in Jesus, there's more than that. And is willing to die to that mindset and to now channel all of your gifts and ambitions and energies into pursuing godliness and the benefit for the people of the people who are around you. Jesus says, in that you find life. Paul Miller, who's a friend of many in, in this church, uh, has written a book called The, the J-Curve. And, and in The J-Curve, he, he reminds us is that's the trajectory of the Christian life. It, it's, it's the J. And I always, you know, I can't remember whether it's dyslexic J or not, so I'm just going to do it, uh, of course, how I look at this. And I, Anyway, we die to self, die to self, and yet we get to the point where we experience resurrection because we have a resurrection faith. That's the essence is when we come to faith in Christ, we say, I no longer want to be who I am. I, 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 that person needs to die because I need to be who God wants me to be. And so we die and then we find life. And, and what Paul does in his book, The J-Curve, which I, I highly commend uh, to, to you to read, he says all of life, it's not just the essence of life, but all of life is really lived out in a, a series of little deaths and resurrections for the believer. 
We die because of things that are taken from us, whether it's family or friends, people who die in our lives. Losses that we experience, they are like little deaths. And yet when we're trusting in God, we find that even after that, there's resurrection and we find new life. There are things that we see in our lives that are sin, but a lot of times sin will bring a temporary level, a measure of, of pleasure or a relief. And when we say no, because we recognize it's sin to that, there's a death. We're dying to that sinful nature. And yet, once we recognize what God is doing in us, we find a resurrection. There's new life after we die to that. And so the invitation that we have during this Advent season is to give a gift to our Lord Jesus Christ by dying to ourselves, living to him. And while there is a death that is involved because we are saying no to things that we are comfortable with or that bring us pleasure, the promise of God is even as we give that gift of dying to self, we will find life by faith in Jesus Christ. And so my urge to you during this season is to consider, even as I need to consider on an ongoing basis, to what do I need to die? And how do I live for Christ? And we are giving the gift of myrrh to our Lord Jesus Christ whenever and to whatever extent we are able to say with the Apostle Paul, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But the life that I now live, I live by faith in my Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the gift that we bring joy to the one who receives, but this is the gift that ultimately we find joy as we have given it. May we all be those who give the gift of myrrh to our Lord. Father, bless us in this difficult way this which we cling to, which we are familiar with, this is hard to part with. This idea of death, which is so frightening and uncomfortable for us. Help us through Christ, who died and rose again, see that death is not the final word. That there is a resurrection and there is a life. That we might have the courage and the conviction to die to ourselves for your sake, giving of ourselves fully to you as living sacrifices, pleasing and righteous. Work in us, Lord. We may continually put to death that which needs to die and cling to that which is alive and gives life, not only to us, but to all around us. We may praise your name together with all the saints throughout the world, that even the unbelievers will give thanks because of your people. That is truly a gift. It comes from us, but ultimately comes from you. May your name be praised in the church and throughout the world, we pray this Advent season.